The Landlord and Lawyer Podcast with Ben Beadle and Tessa Shepherdson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the June Landlord and Lawyer Podcast. He's Ben Beadle. He's the landlord. And she's Tessa Shepherdson. She's the lawyer. And today we have two brilliant guests for you. They've been guests before. We brought them back together. It's uh, Kate Faulkner and Julie Ford. And we're going to be talking about the white paper. What else is there to talk about, frankly? Uh, (laughs) Two esteemed guests, uh, great knowledge of our industry, sensible views. Let's see what they've got to say. everybody and uh, welcome to the podcast in um, June 2022 and we have two fabulous guests with us today. We have Kate Faulkner of Property Designs and we have Julie Ford of Gothard Row. So um, we'll get them to uh, introduce themselves in a minute Um, and today we're going to be talking about the white paper that was published last week. So Ben do you want to start us off? Oh, if I must, uh, uh, Tessa, um, <laughs> certainly uh, has caused uh, uh, some interesting debate, it's fair to say, uh, with the publication of this uh, white paper. Um, it's brought together a lot of government announcements from yesteryear, um, but I think it, it could be viewed as a, a little bit of a hand grenade uh, by, the, by the sector. It's certainly, if it comes to fruition, going to bring about some of the most significant uh, changes we've seen for for thirty odd uh, years, um, and I think we're going to be discussing with our guests uh, the good, bad, and the ugly. Uh, but uh, essentially, a uh, couple of headline points: doing away with uh, assured shorthold tenancies and assured tenancies, and starting on a periodic basis uh, is proposed that uh, can be terminated by the tenants. Uh, giving two months' notice at any point, so that's uh, going to put a cat amongst the uh, the pigeons. We've got commitments on court reform. We've got new mandatory grounds for uh, repossession. We've got an amendment to the Tenant Fees Act when it comes to keeping pets. Uh, what else have we got? A, a whole whole raft of other things. And I think you know landlords will look at this and think, um, "Oh, crikey!" Uh, but there are some good things in there. But uh, let's bring in our guest, shall we? Um, Kate. Hello. Say hello. Hello, uh, Kate Faulkner, uh, propertychecklist.co.uk. Um, I actually think this could work quite well, uh, partly because I don't think the government always quite understands how things operate on the ground. So, uh, although getting rid of Section 21 is a bit scary, um, I actually think it's going to work out quite well because um, the job of the beefing up the reason why you can go back into a property, I think, has been done really, really well. Um, so. Uh, I I actually think this should, if if we can make a few amendments, I think yep. this is actually a pretty good, pretty good move. I think it'd be better for everyone. Glass half full. That's what I like to see. Definitely. Kate. Uh, and uh, lovely Julie Ford. Hi, I'm Julie Ford of Gothard Row. Um, I'm kind of a bit on the fence with this white paper, to be honest with you. I do agree with Kate. I can see there are quite a lot of good elements to it, but I think there's just not enough detail for me to really say this is going to be a positive outcome for both landlords and tenants. There seems to be a lot more, it's all about enforcement, 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 but 
again back onto the local authorities to have to do that again local authorities understaffed underpaid they're not enforcing the bits they've got to enforce at the moment so how are we going to actually make this come to fruition well it'd be certainly interesting to see where it lands up maybe we should dive into our favorite subject which is uh, section 21 um uh, and the proposed changes around that kate how do you see this panning out well the thing i love about this idea is that there's all these horrible landlords out there um, just evicting people willy-nilly. Willy-nilly. <laughs> um, and uh, there is no understanding on the ground that actually, just like so one of my tenants, um, she was a single mum, first time living at home uh, and bringing in an awful lot of weed uh, into the flat, uh, surrounded by other single mums who understandably were pretty upset about that. Section 21 asked her to leave. Problem solved. Now, my understanding is um, when she was rehoused by the council, all the people around her are now going to have to snitch on her, um, put reports in, and um, that's going to be good for local neighbourhood relations. And then on top of that, I doubt the council will rehouse her. So that's the bit that I think is um, potentially this could be a bit of a disaster for um homelessness actually from tenants because I think there's just this huge lack of understanding that um, section 21 is only really used for a reason um, and uh, but the beauty is of course being a We've statistician. We've still got those reasons. <laughs> yeah exactly hey, the reasons still exist but also that this uh, going down this route will allow that to we'll know all the stats now Yes. Uh, so give it a year or two and uh, we can prove what we've been trying to tell the government and nobody listened for the last 10 years. No, you're, you're absolutely right, Kate. And I'm, I'm certainly very pleased to see nine mandatory uh, grounds for repossession. And I should just caveat that by saying, um, as you have, you know, we want to sustain tenancies. We want to keep people in their homes. We want all of that. But there are times when, unfortunately, um, landlords do need to take action against antisocial tenants or tenants that aren't paying but also that they might need to move back in or they might need to sell uh, and all of those things have largely been catered for um, with the new grounds which we are very very pleased to see but Julie you, you spoke about um, the sort of uh, I guess the sort of lack of, of, of detail what, what's your sense on the grounds and, and section 21? Um, I think it's not going to be a bad thing to get rid of Section 21 um, as a, a form of eviction. Um, but as Kate's already said, no landlord uses it for what it's actually purposeful for, which is no fault. Every landlord uses it because there is a problem. There is a reason. There is a fault. It's They're only using Section 21 because the Section 8 process is flawed for landlords in a way. You know, they have to prove grounds. The tenants got an opportunity to defend themselves. This could go on for months, cost thousands. Section 21, it's you know, from a textbook perspective, it's a much better way of evicting a tenant. It's quieter, it's cheaper, it just gets the job done. And I think if you remove Section 21 without really having enough backing to for landlords to be able to evict any other way, it's going to fall down and that's going to be the problem because landlords and letting agents rely too much on Section 21 because of its ease. It's an easy form to fill in to start with. You need to fill in like three sections and you're done. Section 8, 
you kind of need to sit down with your head and the, you know the housing act and you need to make sure that that section eight is right and it's so easy to mess it up i think simplifying the process and just making it more streamlined and certainly giving the grounds that landlords need to be able to replace section 21 to give them that security that it is actually going to work when they need it i'm a bit concerned about the antisocial behavior because I know there's a mandatory ground for antisocial behaviour, but that seems to be where there's a conviction. And, you know, that, that, that means that you, to use the mandatory ground, you've got to hang around for a conviction, which could take forever. Um, and if, it's, if you want to evict them without a, um, a, a conviction, then it's going to be back to proof and people going on the witness stand and not wanting to be intimidated yeah. and... You know, I, mean, that, I, I can that is see a that there's problems there. And judges do have a history of refusing cases, which, which do seem quite horrific. So I, they would need to be given really strict instructions and very detailed guidelines so that they actually make the order. Judges don't want to be told what to do, Tessa. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, they tend to prioritise the interests of the tenant, whereas perhaps they ought to be given instructions to or given guidance, let me... <laughs> To, to perhaps prioritise the, the, the position of the, of the neighbours and their co-tenants and the landlords. But, but that's, yeah, but that's partly the point, though, is that what this is going to do is expose the issues that tenants cause in their local communities that aren't the landlord's fault. And sometimes, one of the things I've learned over the years is sometimes you have to, you have to sit back a little bit and watch, and watch the train wreck for the longer term for people to realise. So you imagine all the media stories being focused away from landlords and being focused away of to and focused on neighbours who are having their lives made miserable by tenants. Fortunately, it's not very many, but you only need 10 stories a year to keep that in the papers. Certainly a, a case of be careful what you wish for here, isn't it? Because, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, you know, it won't surprise you that you know, we've done a lot of lobbying on this on this point to make sure that we've got the the right sort of grounds. But we do still share Tessa's concern about the sort of burden of proof when it comes to antisocial behaviour. You know, how do you have something uh, at the moment if, if, if to get a conviction? I think that's going to be really, really hard. But, you know, to rely on. Uh, you know, uh, the judge to take your side on a discretionary ground is is going to be difficult. So we think there's a bit more work that needs to be done around this antisocial behaviour ground. But uh, as Julie said, we are we don't have all of the detail uh, yet, and this is a, a a white paper rather than a bill. So you know, we're going to need to engage and make sure that whatever is delivered. Um, you know, works for responsible landlords as well as gives, uh, you know, tenants the rights that they are, are, are looking for. But, but Julie, you, you, you mentioned something about the, the courts and, you know, how it's broken. And we've spoken about this a lot on this, on this podcast. There is something in the white paper, again, lacking a bit of detail, but uh, an appreciation that courts, the court process needs to be reformed. That's a win for landlords, right? Yeah, absolutely. As long as it's done in such a way that it does benefit the landlord and doesn't end up benefiting the tenant. Um, yes, there are more mandatory grounds going to be coming in, but I'm worried how much evidence a landlord will need for that mandatory ground to be able to be proven in court. And is it still going to be the same where, uh, you know, because it's a ground that you're you're providing evidence on, will the tenant still have an opportunity to defend every single one of those mandatory grounds? I, I just, yeah, I think I, I think just need... Do. 
yeah I think I just for, for landlords I think they just want more safety in regards to being able to evict real problem tenants without the need of having to be dragged through court for months and months and months and again costing them thousands and thousands of pounds yes I know you can tick a box on the form so the tenant ends up paying the court fees but how many of them actually yeah. do that no for, for sure it's uh, something that most landlords end up uh, having to swallow unfortunately but Kate I, I wanted to Tessa I was just going to say I, I suspect if there isn't going to be a fairly clear and easy route for getting rid of um, problem antisocial tenants landlords are just going to say well I'm just going to sell the property and and go down the mandatory route for selling the property and that'll be another property removed from the private rented sector which they can also relet after three months if they don't go on to sell it yes yes that's not a very long time is it <laughs> My lips are sealed, but uh, the uh, the one thing I was going to pose to uh, to UK is the the impact on the student market, because one of the concerns that we have uh, certainly within the membership is that you know we've got this rolling uh, two months, but the student market is very niche, it's very cyclical. Uh, tenants tend to rent from this you know June July August to the following June July August. It's going to put a cat amongst the pigeons this two months notice at any time, won't it? Yeah, I think that's the that is one of the ones. And somebody else had raised a very good point, which I haven't even crossed my mind, is that um, it may cause a problem for HMOs, just general HMOs as well, Correct. because uh, somebody might rent an HMO knowing that they can give notice for two months because it's cheaper than an Airbnb. Uh, so I think this does, I think there needs to be, somebody needs to do a working group on this and a report back to, uh, the government, I think, um, with some, I think it's always good if we take what they want to do, understand what they want to do, and then go back with a slightly different proposal. Cause actually, yep. if I've understood it correctly, and it might just be the big thing was all about three year tenancies. Yeah. That's died of has a tragic that, death. Has that it? just gone now? So <laughs> yeah. basically, what we're saying is on the one, there is a huge contradiction in the white paper, if I'm correct on that, because on the one hand, they want state to be part of a stable community, particularly families. But on the other hand, you can't be part of a stable community anymore because you can't sign a three year fixed deal. And a lot of those happened in London yeah. um, when rents were pretty good value during the pandemic. So I think the government's. Um, inadvertently contradicted itself and I would therefore hope that for students HMOs um, uh, and uh, for those that want to sign a long contract they can or they maybe just make um, make make it slightly different that the, the two-month notice comes in for a, a different legal reason Julie Tess you'll be better on this than me but if there's a almost like all the grounds where a, um, a landlord can um, uh, evict a tenant for if you like then the the tenant has a similar set of grounds that they can give two months notice for even during a three-year contract mm. or um so that we we can get the best of both worlds but i think that i think it is a little contradictory yeah i mean i can see that there's an advantage that tenants aren't going to be locked into contracts with bad landlords you know if they find that there's a lot of mold and that there's problems with the property that they weren't told about before they moved in they will just be able to go which they can't do at the moment so I can see that there's an advantage in that I mean if, if it's a good property there, 
they're unlikely to go. I mean, we've got a shortage of rented accommodation. <laughs> I was going to say, if it is a property, they're just <laughs> unlikely to use it because they won't have anywhere else to go. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the slightly fanciful thing about this this white paper. I find is you know it's written in the. I mean, a it's written in uh, well not the white paper. The press release was in awful, divisive disgraceful language by the Secretary of State and don't edit that out Tessa um, uh, it, it, it was horrible towards landlords but the, the the white paper itself is 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 far more balanced but it does make the sort of a sweeping assumption that you know if a tenant isn't happy with their property well there might just be you know a menu of of homes that they can just you know move to and that teach that bad landlord hello you know we're in the middle of uh, a, a really serious housing crisis um, where, you know, actually we're getting calls on our advice line now where landlords are having to deal with people that that just literally have nowhere to go. They haven't fallen out. They're paying their rent. You know, they're, they're wanting to move, but they, you know, they can't. They're, they're physically, there's not stuff that's available out to them. So I know, I guess the, you know, the white paper wasn't intended to deal with that, but it does feel like, you know, the elephant in the room is what we, you know, if we're, if we're beating up the private rented sector, you know, what are we going to promote ahead of it? <laughs> you know, who's going to build the homes that we need? I also feel that there's an element of the government trying to resolve a problem by legislation, which is only really going to be solved by spending money. Correct. And the two things are firstly, building social housing, Absolutely. and there needs to be a massive amount of housing built, and they could do that with modular housing, which is brilliant. And the other thing is enforcement. I mean, there's plenty of regulations. It's just not enforced. And the reason for that is the local authorities haven't got any money to pay and train staff to do it. They're too but, busy but, bloody going off yeah, for licensing. But, but, but my view is, um, and I feel even more strongly having read this, is the local authorities have supposed to be regulating the private rental sector for how many years? And they've failed. Yeah. And the cost of licensing versus the number of prosecutions, disastrous. You know, I noticed they put Nottingham in there as a great case study. Well, I don't know if they've issued, they may have had 29,000 applications, but last time I looked, they'd had about, they'd issued about 500 licenses. They've got like I a two year it, backlog, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, I hope it's a few more now, but the reality, my view is, is where the government's going fundamentally wrong is that um, they are trying to enforce uh problems in a property when the tenant is already in there that's too late it's too expensive and the councils aren't the right people to do it um just like they always outsource the parking tickets and stuff because council people would be extraordinarily expensive to do that so they've got it wrong what we have to do and i've said to them why are you getting councils to do this when you can pay agents to do it if you introduce the regulation of property agents, lovingly called ROPA, and if you introduce a property MOT, I think you'd call it a property passport, Ben, um, so that no very few bad properties end up on the open market because they won't be allowed to be advertised on right move yeah. on the market, etc. unless, Zoopla, better mention them, uh, <laughs> unless um, they are legally and safely let. That is much cheaper and it's much better. And um, I think that's that's one of the fundamental um, things that the government have got wrong. I think the local councils are a, uh, no offence to anybody who's trying to do a good job because there are some people working really hard. But it's it's proved to be a disaster. Pull it, do something else. And how are you going to have licensing and an ombudsman? 
and a house and a port how's all that going to fit together because that just sounds very expensive um and i'm not sure that's been thought through so if well, this I'll... results in the getting rid of licensing quite i mean uh, i'm thinking back kate to the very first podcast that we did where you were our wonderful guest where we talked about what is it the unique property reference numbers mm. yeah 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 the system that. with that i mean that's what they need to do but so I, that it can't be advertised unless it's got its yeah to, to be fair i do i do the government with other work that i'm doing are really on board with that yes they are so i do think that and i hope that at some stage the property portal will relate to UPRNs. Yeah. So I do, I do think they, to be fair, they've really understood that the industry loves them and the industry is doing tons of work because they're so excited about the difference it could make to the industry, but also to consumers. So um, I think we will get there. Um, but councils are not the right people to enforce. They can't do it. They are too expensive. Um, and the administration now of licensing is just crazy. It's and not also, it's not a fair, not a level playing field, is no. it? Because if you're in one local council, you could be clobbered. If you're in another area, you're probably going to be ignored, even if yeah. you're a criminal. And it, it's there to it's there to help tenants and not be funny. My job, you know, my, my main job is to is to help tenants or landlords and, and be a, be their consumer champion. And how on earth am I supposed to sell licensing to tenants? I can sell them a property MOT. Mm. Because that they get, just like your car needs to be safe on the road, check that the property is safe on the road. Four words. Um, trying to explain to them about licensing is just a, it's, it's a non-starter. And it hasn't worked. It just has not worked. And there's no link, Kate, between licensing and uh, improved standards of, of safety. Oh, no, I, obvious I don't link. think so. We sh what we should maybe look at is I think the northeast has the best standard homes um, or the lowest number of poor properties and i think yep. birmingham has the highest so it'd be very interesting to compare the licensing and enforcement of those two areas i think it's because in northeast there's actually plenty of properties because they, yep. they they don't have any more people like everywhere else so the population's not growing and the rents are pretty reasonable versus wages and they're not really going anywhere just like house prices haven't moved much even through the pandemic so um i think that's why it is but it'd be very what we need to get underneath this is a proper comparison between birmingham and northeast and on the 21 percent of non-decent homes i'd love to know how are they being looked after i doubt whether they're landlords who are members of the nrla tessa <laughs> or julie looks after or indeed an arla and rick's landlord and if they find that 99 percent of them are cheeky uh, self-managing landlords that aren't putting the time and effort into understand the legislation then they've got their answer that they need roper and they need the property mot or you know, Roper, they need to be a member of the NRA. Firstly, no, nobody should be renting to anybody on benefits without those qualifications. Um, and you could stop a lot of the benefit issues if, if you enforced it that way. It's all about enforcing it before it reaches the market. This focus on enforcing regulation after a tenant is in, it hasn't worked. It's failed. Yeah. Kate, you touched on uh, an, an interesting uh, topic that was also mentioned in the white paper, which is the discriminatory element of um, outright bans on renting to people either on benefits or to families with with children. What do you make of that? 
Um, oh, so, well, I could do a whole podcast myself just <laughs> ranting. But if I hear the discrimination against landlords with regards to tenants on benefits, I really do. I'm quite a relaxed person, but I get irate. Yep. The, and I don't know how many times I've posted that it's got nothing to do with the tenant. Um, the tenants who are on benefits renting in the private sector are being absolutely appallingly treated. Firstly, they most of them will be eligible for a social home that, as Tessa mentioned, isn't being delivered. Secondly, housing allowance is being capped. So they're being told you can only borrow it, you can only pay this much, despite the fact that rents are going up because we've got such a shortage. And thirdly, DWP are outrageous, um, you know, with the way they not. So when they pay, they're fine. But that's the one big thing in here. Um, that I am worried about because my understanding is one of the grounds which is another nail in the coffin why would you as a landlord rent to anybody um, on benefits not because of the tenant but because of the system is that if the if the tenant's getting paid benefits and they are late you can't evict them Mm. it's like are you bonkers you know you cannot so I want again very simple to sort out if a tenant is on benefits and you want to rent to them as a landlord, which is a good thing to do, and they're great tenants. Let's have one contract that you have to use. Let's make sure you have to go through an Arla Ricks, UK Arla agent, or uh, you have to be a member of the NRLA, some other recognised landlord association. And if you're not, you can't go and rent to them. And you use one contract so that the charities know automatically if it's not on that contract, that's it, tenant wins. And um, DWP... Um, has to has to talk to either the housing officer or the council or the landlord um, to make sure that somebody isn't evicted because of the terrible terrible way they're paying it with all the clawbacks all the things it's we, we could my frustration is it would be so simple to sort that out um, and at the moment the government are making it impossible for, pri- for private renters who are on benefits to rent in the sector and then blaming landlords for being discriminatory As, and we have to stop that we we're going to have to really really and I don't even know how legal that is Ben to discriminate against landlords in that way to say you can't evict somebody because DWP's late is that illegal <laughs> Well, we certainly need to appreciate more of the detail uh, around how some of this stuff is going to work. But we are totally with you, Kate, on the the discrimination element. I actually met um, Polly Neat yesterday of Shelter um, and was speaking with her about this very subject because I've seen your uh, your your comments. Um, uh, 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 but this is an area that I think um, tenants and landlords can absolutely get behind because. Definitely. If we want to remove the discrimination out of it for the moment, if you have had a crappy experience with DWP, are you going to do it again? I mean, seriously, you know, and, you know, we've had Bill Irvine on this um, podcast a couple of months ago where, you know, we were talking about some of the very, very real issues that that landlords are, are, are encountering. And as you say, you know, it's a system that's failing everybody that's party to it. You know, it's just absolutely bonkers. And, and, but it's 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 a catch-22 for the tenants. The, I mean, mm. it's the tenants who suffer because they get, my understanding is, and I, I, a friend who went through this, um, they get a month's notice they're going to stop their money. Yeah. And then it takes I mean, a year you, to appeal. Julie, you advise um, a lot of tenants. What's your view on this? 
Um, to be honest with you, I'm agreeing with with pretty much everything that's being said, but the, the problem isn't the landlords, the problem isn't the tenants, the problem is DWP. When Absolutely. Universal Credit was um, rolled out, on paper, it looked like a fantastic idea. You know, get rid of all the legacy benefits, put it into one benefit payment that can then be treated. And, you know, that the tenant can actually begin to start getting hold of their own money and manage themselves better. But in practice, the administration of it from DWP is horrendous. And not being able to pay landlords directly from day one of a tenancy, that was the worst decision they ever made. Because a lot of tenants, if they've been on benefits all of their lives, that is their mentality. They're sort of instant institutionalized by it they're not able to be able to think right I must pay my rent and then pay everything else if that is taken out of the equation for them and paid directly to landlords there's no problem landlords have got their money in the back pocket where it should be and tenants don't have to think about paying their rent I know we shouldn't necessarily think about taking that problem away because the rest of us that have to pay rent still have to make sure we do that every month when we get paid but it would actually free up the system to be able to allow landlords to confidently rent to people on benefits because they know they're not going to have the benefits. They're going to have a fight with DWP. The tenant can then say, actually, no, I want the housing benefit paid to me. I promise I'll pay my landlord. And then they don't. And then you can't evict a tenant on benefits if they don't pay it across. When it was housing benefit and you didn't pay your housing benefit to your landlord, it was fraud. With, yep. you, with universal credit, it's not. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. And Julie, just conscious of time, talk to us, um, uh, moving on from universal credit, you know, a devastating subject in my view, but uh, there was something in the white paper about pets. Explain to our, our listeners what's, what, what's proposed there. So as in a nutshell, it basically is saying that pretty much like we already have, I don't really see it's changed the goalposts really very much, but landlords can't reasonably refuse a pet, basically. Um, but there's going to be a lot more that goes with that. I think there's going to need to be pet policies. There's going to be specific clauses in tenancy agreements that are going to need to come in. And as we spoke about before we, we started recording this, this earlier today, the products on the market that are available in the insurance industry for tenants and landlords, there's just not enough at the moment to sustain pets in properties. Um, and again, giving landlord confidence to rent to people with pets. Now, I have a pet myself. So and as a tenant, I want to be able to have my pet with me, absolutely. But with landlords not being able to take an additional deposit, all they can do at the moment is put the rent up. And if you're in the middle of a fixed term, that's not an easy thing to do. If you want to bring the dog or the cat in, at, you know, month number three and you're in a 12-month contract, not an easy thing to do. And pets do sometimes damage the property. No matter how good an owner you are, sometimes it just goes a little bit wrong. And the only products I could find on the market doing research were landlord products, landlord insurance. There is no tenant insurance for their pet that would then cover damage that I could find. If there is, please correct me. But I just think there needs to be more along the lines of how is the landlord going to recover their damage should they need it? Because five weeks worth of deposit, if the tenant doesn't pay the last month's rent, they've got a week's worth of money to clear up whatever damage is done, you know, regardless of whether that's by the pets, the children or the tenant themselves. I've just read an article, um, it was on Property 118 actually, and it was about a landlord who was saying he was a bit concerned about the insurance policy being paid by the tenant anyway, because what if they don't make proper disclosure to the insurer? What if they cancel it without telling the landlord? Or, you know, what if they don't, um, you know, they, what Good if point. they don't pay the money over? What if it takes a long time for the, for the claim to be um, 
to, to be dealt with by the insurance company? Will they ever pay the money over to the landlord? You know, there is actually a lot of problems, which I haven't really thought about, about the the, the um, administration of the yeah. of the insurers being in the control of the tenant, whereas the, the landlord is the one who's actually going to want the money. I mean, the tenant's not going to want to do anything that's going to put their premiums up. I'm, I'm going to be dead honest, though. We should sort this. It's not it's not hard. I don't believe it's hard. We as an industry should just get on, find a way, put our heads together and find a way to get it sorted. It's not complicated, um, much like, you know, versus some of the other things that everybody's facing. This is one thing that we should just get on, get it sorted, uh, speak to the insurance industry and say, look, guys, you know, um, uh, we, we need to get this done. Full stop. Mm. Totally agree. What with do that. people think about the um, the rent review thing? Because I have to say, this is one area where I do feel some concern, and I I can see the shadow of the Rent Act 1977 sort of stretching its hand over slightly. Because if landlords are not allowed to have rent review clauses and are subject to rents being challenged by the tribunal. If there are not many, you know, there, there, there need to be market rents for them to compare against. And if the market rents are sort of, you know, under under the control of the tribunal, because you know, do you see what I mean? I can see that there uh, could be a problem. I actually term. think, I don't think this is a huge issue, and I might just be being misoptimist <laughs> optimism here. But I think there's two things. One, the biggest thing is, is they've been very clear they're not introducing rent controls. Yeah, big so, Big ask for the mayor of Bristol, stop talking about rent controls and get your 13 and a half thousand people sitting on a waiting list down. Go and worry about that. And that will release a lot of homes from the private rented sector. So that would be my message there. And particularly because they're being introduced in Scotland. I think that's a big win. Secondly, I think what they're trying to do is to make it flexible. We have very good data today on rent. Uh, very good if this was 15 years ago it'd be a disaster but we we can prove what the rental increases are and i think what i would say to landlords because actually they're rubbish at doing this and it almost fuels the skyrocketing extortionate rents thing is do what they do in social housing increase your rent every single year in line with inflation plus a little bit extra because do you know what if you do that then everybody else will see and the ONS stats, um, which currently show that annual rents rise around 2% versus, yep. I know we've got inflation at the moment, but long-term inflation of around 3%. So landlords are not increasing their rents enough to keep their wages, i.e. their rent the same, uh, you know, let alone giving themselves a bit of extra money for all the extra maintenance and legals to keep up with. So I think if landlords should take out of this, we'll do what they do in social housing, where we can, we'll increase it with inflation plus a little bit extra. The only difficulty with that is that typically rents move in line with wages. So if wages are going up by um, four or five percent, which maybe they are at the moment, depending on what stats you look for, and inflation's going up by 10 or 11, you're not going to get that. Although I'm guessing social housing and shared ownership properties are going to get mm. a bit of a nasty shock next mm. year. Um, so I think we should, this is a time where all landlords should be increasing rents every single year. And actually then I don't think any of this, I think this would all go away as a problem. I mean, certainly Kate, I think the, what's been announced in the white paper itself uh, is, is not unhelpful because whilst it does away with contractual rent review clauses, you can still put, um, they're saying that you can still put the rent up annually uh, via a notice. There's a slightly longer notice period. 
uh, it can be challenged at the first tier tribunal. I mean, it can, it can be challenged at the moment uh, via the first tier tribunal. A slight amendment is that um, they will in future only give you what you ask for or reduce yeah, it. I saw that. They won't give you more than you ask for. Um, I'm slightly ambivalent about that particular thing. I, I also had a discussion a couple of weeks ago with Siobhan McGrath, who is the president of the first tier tribunal, you know, talking about some of these things about how, you know, how accessible it was, how they were gearing up and all of that sort of stuff. But I, I don't see the rent review being majorly problematic for landlords. Julie, have you got a view? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, just reading the white paper, other than the extension of one month to two months, yep. really, what is the difference to what we've already got in place? The, the rents can already be challenged by, by tenants if they wish through the first tier tribunal. Um, the, the ones that I've put through myself for, for tenants and when I've appealed um, or, or put evidence through on behalf of landlords, I've never had a tribunal that's put it higher than what the landlord wanted. So I'd be interested to see how often that actually happens. Um, but from a practical point of view, I think as, as Kate's already touched on, it's landlords thinking they're being great landlords by not increasing the rent for years and years and years, and then suddenly get their knickers in a twist when they want to put the rent up, you know, by a couple of hundred quid. And the answer to that is, well, I haven't put the rent up for years why the tenant is complaining well because it's a big old jump from where they are to where you want them to be and I talk to a lot of letting agents on, on a daily basis that are, that are calling in for advice and there doesn't seem to be an understanding of how to increase rent and I think with with what Kate touched on you know just a couple of percent every year it's a thing that the tenants are expecting they're going to be thinking about it it's in the back of their mind they're already budgeting for that but nobody does an affordability test when they want to put the rent up. It's the first thing you do when you've got an applicant that you want to rent yeah. a property. You check, can they afford this? But when you go to put the rent up, you don't check if they can still afford it. That's such a good point. I do wonder, though, if we, again, it's about us working together as an industry to help. It would be very interesting to know on an annual basis how much social housing rents are going up and then putting through a recommendation every year and say, we recommend this year rents should go up by around this percent in these regions this for flats that's for houses because the inflation mm. on both is very different and we just make it a very proactive thing to show that the landlords it's normal and actually it's what the social housing providers are doing because if you don't do it you won't have the money to pay for the mm. maintenance and the legals and all that that you've got to do so it doesn't help anybody so I think maybe a takeaway from this should be you know to have recommendations of what the annual rental increases mm. should be and then everybody knows they're safe to put it up by that amount um until you know um because there'll be a good rationale for doing so yeah and, and kate it's worth pointing out actually the latest ons figures were out yesterday um and in the year to april across the uk rents rose by 2.7 percent uh, sorry two point uh yeah to, uh, to, uh sorry to may 2.8 percent and it was the same uh, in england london 1.5 percent and so yeah there's a lot of frankly nonsense going around at the moment in terms of you know rents are off the scale you know rents are this rents are that we, we have to be very careful about the figures that we are are mm -hmm. quoting because you know dare I say it you might say that rents are are, are falling in real terms uh, well they uh, have <laughs> they, I mean the ONS they have been falling in real Indeed. terms and the ONS has done it so how any MP or uh, can come out with that totally uh, against. I think Jeremy Corbyn used to talk about. It. I used to tweet to him all the time, going, 
I can assure you that statistically, rents are not extortionate, nor are they high skyrocketing. He never got back to me. Uh, no, uh, yeah, he's perhaps got a bit more time. I thought you might mention it, but he hasn't. Um, so I think that you know we should take we should Ben we should take this as a takeaway and say right, okay, let's let's look at what we think should be an annual increase yeah. and how we should advise landlords and letting agents on annual increases from this you know from this change because i think that would give people well it'd be certainty. nice and trans certainty and transparency a bit like they do with the living wage you know and they yeah. say well this is the living wage blah blah that kind of thing um i think we could uh, i think we could do do a good job on this and help everybody out maybe it could be published on the portal yeah yes <laughs> in a we thousand years time, time. <laughs> the portal's a really really good idea and we should all get behind that there you go we talked about it yeah okay <laughs> i think probably we better wrap up now because i i know some of us have to go off to different places so um i think perhaps we better draw it to a close so um thank you so much kate and julie for being brilliant guests it's been a really good podcast hasn't it ben great fun and uh you know factual chat and uh, i think maybe in closing dare I say, a, a slightly more optimistic look forward than pessimistic look uh, look forward. But proof is in the eating and there's a lot of work between now uh, and when this thing becomes a bill that we all need to make sure we you know, lend our voices to. So ladies, thank you ever so much. Maybe thank we you. better um, come together in about a year's time and see what's happened. That would be fun. It will always remain the same. Nothing would change. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll still be bloody talking about it. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much, everybody. Well, Ben, what did you think of that? I, I really enjoyed that. I think it's one of the best podcasts we've done for, um, oh, I don't know, a while. Forever. <laughs> not, to, <laughs> no. not to say anything bad about our other guests, but that's no, but... a very good one. No, and yeah, there's just so much to talk about, isn't there? You know, that white paper has got so much in it. And, you know, Kate and... Uh, Julie are seasoned operators when it comes to our our industry and they know mm. what they're talking about and I think it's going to be really really interesting to see the the uh, progression of this um, white paper into a bill and you know what stays what goes what changes uh, certainly we hope that uh, there's some things that are gonna gonna change. Hmm. Well I mean if they get around to it I mean I I do worry about that because um you know, says Mr. Johnson, is there? Is he still going to be in post next week, next month? You know? I think. Well, I think what will also be interesting is there should still be a reshuffle in July, yeah. um, uh, and it will be very, very interesting to see um, where Mr. Gove ends up or stays potentially, because there's no doubt about it. These are Gove's reforms, um, yeah. uh, and. Uh, you know they are radical he get he gets things done uh so i think you know, i'd be very very interested to see what happens uh next month mm, yeah so watch this space but i think there is generally uh you know uh, uh noises of optimism uh, as well as noises of of caution from uh from julie and and kate but let's see where all this uh, ends up but it was a great chat absolutely flew by um yep. uh, really really good fun Okay, so so thanks to our brilliant guests. Um, I can't remember who we've got next month. We but... always say this, don't we? We could never remember. <laughs> I'm sure we've got someone. Oh, someone fabulous, I'm sure. Yes. Um, but I can't remember who it is. Uh, we need we need to upgrade our memories, I think. Um, yeah, but it'll be a surprise. 
it will be a surprise and for us <laughs> yes although we i think maybe we might not do one in august i think we're going to have a gap aren't we I think we might have a break in August. Um, we've certainly got um, Simon White uh, of the Welsh Government, I think, lined up for September, talking about the changes that have been postponed uh, yeah. in Wales to December. So Simon's our, our guest for September. But we should be back soon with another uh, iteration and uh, look forward to uh, chatting again. OK, well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll speak to you again soon. See you next time. Bye-bye.